morning. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus will um, be reading today beginning at the end of chapter 9. And we, we are working our way forward in this, in this section. And uh, we definitely will make some progress today. But before we can uh, cha-cha real smooth, we're going to have to uh, take it back now, y'all. And uh, those of you who are visiting, my apologies, but this is a, a two-parter. You're coming in halfway through a study that we've been doing. Uh, we've been exploring this phenomenon, a mysterious phenomenon of heart hardening. Uh, Pharaoh, in the midst of these plagues, is presented to us as the perfect case study of such an animal. But he is by no means the only example of someone with a hard heart, someone who's unresponsive and unmoving in the face of the Lord and his demands. Um, la last week, Stacy brought our family some Amish donuts. Uh, they were freshly made. They're as fresh as you could get. They were still warm, and uh, the brown paper bag that they came in was already turning see-through. You know, they were, those things were just out of this world. Uh, I, I don't know if you can feel and hear uh, the hardening of your arteries as it's happening, but I believe that day that I, that's exactly what I heard and felt. Amish donuts may prove to be the death of me. But a much more progressive and a much more potentially terminal condition is the hardening of our hearts, spiritually speaking. It, when I, where our spiritual sensitivities are dulled to the point of becoming unfeeling and unresponsive, when we develop these defenses that are so scaly and so thick that, that truth doesn't penetrate anymore, and if there was such a thing as a spiritual surgeon general, then he would no doubt warn of, the, of how hard-heartedness you know, is, is able to turn your conscience from, from pink to black. And uh, hard-heartedness is going to be the death of multitudes of people, but I'm zealous that it won't be the death of anyone in this place today by the grace of God. Now, there are two sides of the heart-hardening coin, and last week we looked at the human side. We looked at a number of aspects of human heart-hardening from Pharaoh's example, and uh, we saw that, that it involves such things as his self-exaltation, uh, his shallow confession of sin, his self-destruction by his own doing, and his self-determination. We saw by all of these things that, that Pharaoh was an active agent in the hardening of his own heart against the Lord. And that's really an essential piece of information to bring into this second part. Okay, I don't want you to forget any of that stuff. It's so important. And that's the reason that I'm backing up to the end of chapter 9. Even though we discussed it last week and read it last week, I want to reread a portion of last week's passage before moving ahead into chapter 11. So without any further ado, let's read together beginning at Exodus chapter 9, 
verse 34, and I'll read down to 11.13. And you can follow along in your Bibles as I read from mine. This is beginning at Exodus 9.34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do, do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, and all the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought up the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as never had been, been before or ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and he pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. 
They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then, Moses then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take, care, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will, not, he will let you go from here. He will let you go from here, and when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. We thank God for the, the reading and now the preaching of his word. You see that the second side of this heart hardening coin is the divine agency that's involved. And we read in many points in this passage that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we've got a lot of questions about that, don't we? Let's just, let's just admit it. Let's just uh, get that out on the table. We, there's a lot of mystery here. And, and there's no problem. What, we don't have any problem whatsoever with the human side of this. We, we can understand how uh, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. We understand that he's a responsible moral agent that he has willfully determined to harden his heart against the Lord, that's, that's a really sad thing, but that's an understandable thing. We, we don't really have any kind of issue with that. It doesn't present us with any moral or logical or theological conundrum. You know, we, we can process that little piece of information, but then you add the Lord into the mix, and that's when it's like... <laughs> 
that's, that's where things get really, really tricky. As I say, we've got a lot of questions, lots of hows, and more than a few whys. We've got more questions, it turns out, than there are answers. And let's just acknowledge right off the bat that the Lord doesn't owe us any kind of answers. He doesn't have to make it make sense to our puny little brains. Still less will God sit at the bar of human judgment. You know, when, when our questions actually turn into questioning, and, and when our search for answers shifts, albeit subtly, to accusation against God. So no, God does not owe us any kind of explanation. But he is very gracious to reveal something of his ways and something of his will. The Lord is incredibly kind to reveal something of his purposes to us. And we see this all over this chunk that we've read this morning. And it takes this form, okay? God says, I will do X, that Y, or so that Z will happen. And you understand that those little words, the that and the so that, those indicate purpose or result. If you were to do a little exercise and just kind of go back through and circle every instance of that or so that, you would have a real visual kind of indication of just how sovereign and purposeful the Lord is. You would realize that everything is under his control. All of it. it it's all his means towards his ends. And I'm not just talking about the events that are leading up to the Exodus. I'm talking about all the events of your life and of mine, the hardships, the, the pain, the opposition, the struggle, which we all know is real, uh, all of these come according to the will of God. And they come in, in perfect um, symmetry with the, the purposes of God. He is a purposeful God. He's not just calling this in. He's not just making it up as he goes along. We serve a God who is not, like some theologians tell us, just kind of infinitely resourceful. No, he is a God who has sovereign, eternal purposes that he sets in motion and fulfills. And uh, I think that's a source of comfort for you today. If you were to grasp that, you could take comfort in the fact that your life is in the hands of the sovereign ruler of the skies. And he's ever gracious and he's ever wise. He knows exactly what he's doing. And it's good. It's always good. Well, the goal for today is to look at the divine agency in the hardening of the heart and to seek to understand it as much as we can. We're not going to understand it exhaustively. I want to say that just to kind of calibrate your expectations of me and uh, of your, yourself. We'll seek to understand uh, this thing according to the purposes that the Lord reveals in this passage. So then our heading, uh, this is kind of the second point, the continuation of last week, we want to see the aims of divine heart hardening. 
the aims of divine heart hardening. And I think we can boil these down into three aims or three purposes. I want to just point them out to you in the time that we have remaining. The first is compatible confirmation. Compatible confirmation. Let me just go ahead and state where I'm going with this because I'm, I'm sure it's not self-evident. I apologize that that's complicated right off the bat. But here, here's what I'm saying. That God's purposes in hardening Pharaoh's heart is to confirm Pharaoh in his willful rebellion. And furthermore, God's confirmation is compatible with Pharaoh's willful determination. It's not contradictory to it. Okay, it's, it's, it's what God's doing here is not coercive. It's, it's compatible, and I believe that this is a point that the passage makes, even though it doesn't use explicit words and details to make it, it, it makes this point more in terms of the context and the structure. So let me just point that out to you as best as I can. And I would point you back to where we started, chapter 9, verse 34. Just go there with me in, in your Bible. Flip back a couple of pages. 934, this is the explanation for what happened in the aftermath of the seventh plague. You know, the, that hailstorm. Um, this was a plague that you'll recall the Lord graciously removed completely by the intercession of Moses. And we read that when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, that he, quote, sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So both Pharaoh and now his servants actively hardened their heart against the Lord. Now look at what the Lord says in, in the prelude to the eighth plague in the first verse of chapter 10. This is just two, two verses away. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. God is saying that he has actively hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. So which is it? Who's doing the hardening? These two verses obviously have the same event in mind, and that's clear not just from their proximity to one another, but that's also clear by the inclusion of the, the servants in this hardening. So we, we're made to understand that that's talking about the same, the same event. And we're down to then two options of how to make sense of this. And the first option is that this is a total contradiction. And the narrator apparently forgot what he wrote two sentences before. And now he's attributing something to a, a completely different agent. I, ho I hope you can see, I, and by the way, I'm not, that's not just kind of a logical objection. That's, that's an objection that some biblical scholars made for the apparent, for, for in, in an attempt to deal with this. They say, well, it's a, it's a contradiction and it's evidence once again that this is a human book and that human authors make mistakes. But I hope you can see how ridiculous that is and how insulting that is to the author, to uh, Moses, as I believe. 
No, the, the narrator hasn't forgotten what he wrote two sentences ago. He's putting these two ideas within earshot of each other, and he's not embarrassed in the least about having those two stand side by side. So the other option is that Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart and God's hardening of his heart are totally compatible. That is to say that they can both occur at the same time without, you know, like a beep, an error message popping up that tells you that, that you're working with, you know, something that's not compatible. No, there's two agencies at play, one human, the other divine, and they're working simultaneously. They're working in concert. Pharaoh's not acting kind of against his will like some marionette. God pulling string, his strings. No, he, Pharaoh's doing precisely what he wants to do. We saw this last week, I hope, very clearly. As he's persisting in his disobedience to God, this is what he's determined to do. And God, for his part, is doing precisely what he has determined to do in Pharaoh. And what he, ha as the creator and as the sovereign Lord, has total authority to do, which is to harden the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. Now, out of those two options, contradiction or complementarity, you know, we can understand the one. We could understand, our minds can fathom contradiction. And that's why that explanation may, some might find appealing but we have an exceptionally hard time understanding compatibilism. And, and, and that's because we just kind of quickly run into the limitations of our own mind. It doesn't take us very long until we're, we're squarely in the realm of mystery. So rather than try to find a satisfactory way to explain that to us, I would, I would be satisfied, I would be happy if we just understood that this is what scripture teaches without trying, you know, bending over backwards, trying to explain it. This is the testimony of scripture. And I could give you plenty of examples, but let's just fast forward to the best example. And the best example is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the central event of the Bible. Not only that, it's the central event in human history. How do you describe why Jesus went to the cross? Well, here's how the Apostle Peter describes it in his sermon on Pente at, at the time of Pentecost. Uh, you find this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He's speaking to a Jewish audience about Jesus, and, and he says about Jesus that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He, he's talking about divine agency. But then he said, this Jesus, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Do you see? What, there, there's a human agency involved. Jewish religious leaders who rejected Christ, who delivered, over, uh, delivered him over to lawless Romans to be hung as a cr common criminal. This is wicked and lawless on their part, but there's also divine agency involved. And praise God for it, because in his divine wisdom and foreknowledge, God determined that the death of his beloved son on a Roman cross 
was the only way for our sins to be atoned for. It was the only way for God's righteous wrath to be satisfied. It's, it was the only way for, for justice to be served and for, wisdom, uh, for mercy to be dispensed. And we were thankful for it because we know that we stand forgiven at that cross. The wickedness of man and the righteousness of God are not contradictory explanations of what happened at Calvary. They are compatible explanations. Now back to Egypt. Okay, so from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 11, there's multiple references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But they take three different forms. Okay? And one highlights Pharaoh's agency. And so we read something like, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The other one highlights divine agency and says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, but there's a third form, and it's kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's neutral. It, it's perhaps purposely ambiguous. And it just says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So you've got those three forms. Pharaoh hardened. The Lord hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sort of a passive, neutral, maybe purposely ambiguous. And I, I actually, that's the view I take. It, I think that's a perfect expression, that middle one, of the compatibilism that I'm talking about. So in that phrase, you have like a beautiful synthesis of those two agencies. And you see this, don't you, at the end of chapter 9? So we looked at verse 34 to see the human agency. We looked at chapter 10, verse 1, to see the divine agency. But what do you see right there smack dab in the middle? It says in verse 35, it says, So Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Okay, so I, I made myself a little chart, and I listed every reference to Pharaoh's hard heart from chapter 4 to chapter 11. And then I noted which of those three expressions is used in each of those instances. And you could do that too. You could reproduce that chart um, if you took the time and just reread back through. And what you would discover if you made a chart like that is that for the first chunk of plagues, the predominant form is that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. The predominant form that is, is put forward is that highlights the human agency. But for this last chunk of plagues, and perhaps you noticed this as we were reading, that what takes over at this point is uh, the highlighting of the divine agency, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I think... I can see some purpose in that shift, in that structure. I think, I think what the structure is teaching us is that God's hardening comes as a sort of confirmation of Pharaoh's hardening that, that he's doing on his own in, in, in his willful determination. God's, God's confirmation of a person's own determination is a form of judgment. And, and thus, it's a fearful thing. I think when we see 
what we see in Pharaoh is kind of an individual instance of what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 as the present revelation of the wrath of God against mankind, which comes because of mankind's willful refusal to acknowledge the Lord or give him glory or give him thanks. What does God's wrath look like in Romans chapter 1 as it's presently revealed? Well, the repeated refrain in Romans chapter 1 is this, God gave them up. We have that over and over again. That's what it means for God's wrath to be revealed. God gives them over, gives them up to a debased mind, to dishonorable passions. Uh, the Lord allows people to do what they were determined to do to their own destruction. In a sense, the Lord is saying in his judgment, in his wrath, he's saying, fine, have it your way. You're the boss. Or as Moses puts it in chapter 10, verse 29, as, as you say, he's channeling his best Wesley, as you wish. And I don't know how that strikes you. Perhaps there's a young person here today, young adult maybe, who thinks that that sounds pretty good, actually. Freedom to do what you want? That, that's what you're after, isn't it? That's, you'd love to be able to get out from under the authority of your parents. You, and by the way, your parents are just a, a form of the authority of, of God in your life. And so maybe that sounds like the best news ever, getting out from the authority of God. Maybe that sounds like total liberation to you. I'm here to tell you that it's the exact opposite, actually. That would, that would represent slavery. What you desperately need from the Lord is not his confirmation. That would be to your eternal detriment. What you need from the Lord is his salvation. You don't need him to be hands off. You need, you need him to have his hands on you, rescuing you from your sin and from yourself, pulling you out of the mire and setting your feet upon a rock. And so I'd urge you today, if you're a young person who's thinking along those lines, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. The Lord may just harden your heart, and that would be the most terrible thing that would ever happen. Now, a second aim in divine heart hardening is demonstration, a demonstration. The Lord hardens hearts for the purpose of putting his uniqueness, his power, his glory on full display. We see this in a variety of places, but uh, let's just start with back it a little bit further in chapter 9, verses 14 to 15. The Lord says to Pharaoh through Moses, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that, and there's, there's that one of those purpose pointers, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and 
you would have been cut off from the earth. Last week, we used the analogy of a boxing match. And Pharaoh's problem really is the human problem that he's exalting himself. He's, we're, we're setting ourselves against the Lord. We're, we're trying to contend with him for that top spot. And our delusion is that we're going to defeat him and that we're going to displace him as the heavyweight champion of the world, who's undefeated, by the way. Anyway, Pharaoh, in his hardness, is going multiple rounds in the ring with the Lord. But in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord says, Pharaoh, I could have landed the TKO in, in the first 10 seconds of round one, you understand. But God's calculus is that to harden Pharaoh's heart, to, to let him kind of get back up again and again and again, to go the full round, 10 rounds, that is going to be a greater display of the glory of God. It's going to be a greater display of God's power and of his majesty. And that is what the Lord's after. He's after the maximal demonstration of his glory. And it's right for him to be after that. He, he's the only person that it's right for him to be after that. When we seek our own glory, it's just it's so wrong because we don't deserve it. But he's God and he deserves all glory and all majesty and all praise. And his ultimate purpose is that all glory and praise would redound to him. So, so he's interested in the maximal demonstration of his glory. Now we get a, we get a preview of the decisive 10th round of this match in the first 13 verses of chapter 11. Sorry, I've got you flipping way more than I typically do. I think we'll get back to normal here pretty soon. But in the first 13 verses of chapter 10, a, a, a final plague is previewed. This is a coup de grace. The, the Lord is going to go out among um, Egypt around midnight. And the firstborn in all of Egypt is going to die. There's going to be shrieks of terror as every parent discovers their firstborn child dead. Every parent. And we're talking from the highest born, Pharaoh himself in his, in his castle, um, to the lowest, like the handmaiden. It's going to affect her and her firstborn as well. It's even going to go lower than that to the animals. Even the firstborn of all the animals is going to be dead. All throughout Egypt. Except, of course, among the Israelites. And once again, the Lord is going to make a distinction between Pharaoh's people and his people. And while they're shrieking among Pharaoh's people, the text says that not even a dog is going to growl against the Lord's people. And that will be it. At, the, at that point, Pharaoh will tap out. In that 10th round. And after that, he will let Israel go. That's, that's what the Lord says in verse 1. And, th and really, that's putting it mildly. Let them go. It's not that at all. It's more like he's going to drive them out completely. Verse 8, Pharaoh's servants are going to come and bow down at Moses' feet, begging him and the people to get out of there as fast as they can. 
That's the preview that the Lord gives Moses. And this is the message that Moses delivers to Pharaoh as a warning. And sure enough, Pharaoh doesn't listen. He hardens his heart, and the Lord hardens his heart. Why? To what end? Look at verse 9. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This is all for the full demonstration of the power and the judgment and the glory of God. Now, how does that sit with you? Maybe you're thinking, that's, that's not doesn't really fit with my picture of what God should be like. Maybe you're thinking, man, that's really not fair at all. Or maybe you're thinking, well, how, how can Pharaoh be blamed? How can he be held responsible if he's just doing what a sovereign God has willed for him to do? The good news is that if you're asking questions like that, then you're probably hovering right over the truth. That I, I think you're probably understanding this correct, correctly because these are precisely the kinds of questions that the Apostle Paul addresses. He anticipates and then he addresses them in Romans chapter 9. And he the Apostle Paul responds to our questions like that in a number of different ways, and it really depends on how you're asking the question. If you're, if you're asking in such a way as you're kind of shifting over into the accusation, where you're actually accusing Almighty God of being unjust, then Paul tells you to, in Romans 9, basically to shut up. He, he channels... Greta Thunberg when he says, how dare you? Who, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? Where do you get the nerve, you little creature, to think that the almighty God of the universe has to answer to your little objections? We don't have any right to tell the potter what he can do and what he can't do with his clay. Paul, Paul explains what really should be obvious to us, which is that a sovereign God has every right and he has all authority to make a vessel for honorable use and to make another vessel for dishonorable use. He can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy and likewise, he can harden whoever he wills to harden. And with Pharaoh in mind, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, So what if God, for the purpose of demonstrating his wrath and making known his power, endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to demonstrate something else, which is the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And there he's talking about his people. He's talking about us. And I find that explanation in Romans 9 to be so helpful, even if it's jarring. And I'll, I'll concede that it's jarring to our little minds. It rubs us the wrong way because it goes against everything in our nature. It's the opposite of what we want God to be like but actually it's what we desperately need God to be like. Because we who are by nature objects of wrath, we who 
um, because of our sin and our rebellion and our hardness of heart, we are headed by default to destruction. We desperately need a God who is rich in mercy, who has sovereignly willed to rescue, to, to form people as vessels of his mercy. He's created a, a people to be objects of his grace, who once were objects of his wrath. That's, that's what we need God to be like, if we have any hope of eternal life. Either way, God's, de- God's purpose is, the, is demonstration. It's, it's the full display of his power and his authority, the absence of any rival, wants to showcase his just judgment and his marvelous mercy the Lord is demonstrating his glory and his grace but it's not enough that these would be seen they must be spoken about and that leads us uh, to consider briefly a third aim of divine heart hardening it is for the purpose of proclamation proclamation let's face it as a human race we love to tell stories you know we we thoroughly enjoy uh, hearing and then retelling details of, of different dramas that have played out the common wisdom is that you know we we ought to save the the drama for our mama but the reality is that hardly anyone does you know it's not just middle school girls who shrink from that advice. No, if you were to sneak up to uh, a group of grown men, say, in the month of May, chances are you'll hear, hear them talking about the playoff hockey game the night before. And they'll talk about it for hours, like down to the most minute analysis. They'll, they'll become breathless as they talk about the heroes, you know, the, the guys that scored the decisive goal in the waning seconds of the game or the goalie who made the game-saving stop. But, and then they'll talk with fire in their eyes about the villains, the refs, typically, who they couldn't believe missed that call. They were right there. It happened right in front of them, and it led to a goal that knocked my team out of the playoffs. But that's uh, other people talking. That's not necessarily me. The point is that we're all proclaimers. It's, it's inescapable. And it has everything to do with the fact that the sovereign God is such an incredible author. The story that he's writing is so compelling. His deeds are such that they simply must be told. You, you can't remain silent. And this is one of the main reasons that the Lord reveals why he has hardened Pharaoh's heart and why he has multiplied his wonders on the land of Egypt. It's for the purpose of proclamation and proclamation that needs to take place on two different levels. So first, there's going to be a proclamation that takes place among the Israelites. We could say to their generations. Look again at chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may show these signs among them. And that that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson 
how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done, done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, the, these incredible stories of God's rescue need to be told to your children and to your grandchildren. The Exodus is going to issue forth in songs, lots of different songs and psalms that are to be sung and taught to the next generation. The annual Passover celebration, which the Lord is going to shortly give instructions about, is going to be for the purpose of rehearsing all, to subsequent generations all of the wonderful details of who God is and the great things that he has done for the rescue of his people. But the Lord has a larger purpose. He intends for a wider proclamation. These stories need to be told beyond Israel, even to the nations, not just the generations, but the nations. Look again at chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. He says to Pharaoh, I will send all my plagues so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. By now I could have cut you off from the earth, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see, God, God's plan right from the get-go is international. He, he is God over all the earth, and therefore the news of his exploits must be carried to the ends of the earth and proclaimed worldwide. Sure enough, when, when the Lord's people are, are finally freed and they begin to interact with other nations, you know what they'll discover? They'll discover that the Lord's reputation has preceded them. Other peoples have heard and trembled about what the Lord did in Egypt. And I hope that the application is obvious at this point, mainly because we're out of time to explain it if it's not, but... When we're talking about the plagues and the exodus, I've said this many times, we're talking about the second greatest rescue story of all time. But compared to the first greatest one, this story is just a primer. The, the, the exodus is a, a Dick and Jane story compared to what the Lord accomplished on the cross of Christ for the salvation of sinners, and for the deliverance of his people from, from their slavery to sin and self and Satan. And friends, the point is that we should love to tell that story. It should seem each time we tell it more wonderfully sweet. And those of us who are parents and grandparents have the great privilege, we have the great responsibility to proclaim this gospel to our children, to our grandchildren. And each one of us has been commissioned by our risen and ascended Lord to go into all the world and to make disciples of every tongue and tribe and people and language. We've got a story to tell to the nations. And, and you can begin, you can begin with your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, people who show up on your church's parking lot for a three-on-three -three basketball tournament. The gospel is the very best story to share 
around the water cooler or at recess. This is, a, this is a story of good news that people need to hear and that the Lord would be pleased to bear fruit from. So may we be faithful to face this unfinished task. Well, we've dealt with some really heavy things today, and we've de- delved deep into mystery. The Lord hardens hearts for the purpose of complementary confirmation. And I I pray that none of us would fall into the fearsome judgment of God, whereby he locks us in, so to speak, to the, the path of destruction that we're determined in our blindness and our hardness to take. I pray today that you would yield to the Holy Spirit, who whose gift and power it is to soften hearts and to enable sinners to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God that's always on display, but it's most beautifully on display in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is no better demonstration of the judgment and the mercy of God than the cross of Jesus Christ. And each of us who have, have experienced such a great salvation, we have the great duty, we have the unspeakable joy of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So brothers and sisters, let's go from this place rejoicing and proclaiming. Amen? Amen.